Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson, San Jose, California. Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 21. I don't suppose I was looking so dashed unlike something out of an Edgar Allan Poe story myself, for, as you can readily imagine, the news item which I had just recorded had got in amongst me properly. If the Bassett, in the belief that the Wooster heart had long been hers and was waiting ready to be scooped in on demand, had decided to take up her option, I should, as a man of honor and sensibility, have no choice but to come across and kick in. The matter was obviously not one that could be straightened out with a curt nota prosequi. All the evidence, therefore, seemed to point to the fact that the doom had come upon me, and, what was more, had come to stay. And yet, though it would be idle to pretend that my grip on the situation was quite the grip I would have liked it to be, I did not despair of arriving at a solution. A lesser man, caught in this awful snare, would no doubt have thrown in the towel at once and ceased to struggle. But the whole point about the Woosters is that they are not lesser men. By way of a start, I read the note again. Not that I had any hope that a second perusal would enable me to place a different construction on its contents, but it helped to fill in while the brain was limbering up. I then, to assist thought, had another go at the fruit salad, and, in addition, ate a slice of sponge-cake. And it was as I passed on to the cheese that the machinery started working. I saw what had to be done. To the question which had been exercised in the mind, viz., can Bertram cope, I was now able to reply with a confident, absolutely. The great wheeze on these occasions of dirty work at the crossroads is not to lose your head, but to keep cool and try to find the ringleaders. Once find the ringleaders, and you know where you are. The ringleader here was plainly the Bassett. It was she who had started the whole imbroglio by chucking Gussie, and it was clear that before anything could be done to solve and clarify, she must be induced to revise her views and take him on again. This would put Angela back into circulation, and that would cause Tuppy to simmer down a bit, and then we could begin to get somewhere. 
I decided that as soon as I had had another morsel of cheese, I would seek this Bassett out and be pretty eloquent. And at this moment in she came. I might have foreseen that she would be turning up shortly. I mean to say, hearts may ache, but if they know that there is a cold collation set out in the dining-room, they are pretty sure to come popping in sooner or later. Her eyes, as she entered the room, were fixed on the salmon mayonnaise, and she would no doubt have made a bee-line for it and started getting hers, had I not, in the emotion of seeing her, dropped a glass of the best with which I was endeavouring to bring about a calmer frame of mind. The noise caused her to turn, and, for an instant, embarrassment supervened. A slight flush mantled the cheek, and the eyes popped a bit. "'Oh!' she said. I have always found that there is nothing that helps to ease you over one of these awkward moments like a spot of stage business. Find something to do with your hands, and it's half the battle. I grabbed a plate and hastened forward. A touch of salmon? Thank you. With a suspicion of salad? If you please. And to drink? Name the poison. I think I would like a little orange juice. She gave a gulp. Not at the orange juice, I don't mean, because she hadn't got it yet, but at all the tender associations those two words provoked. It was as if someone had mentioned spaghetti to the relict of an Italian organ-grinder. Her face flushed a deeper shade. She registered anguish, and I saw that it was no longer within the sphere of practical politics to try to confine the conversation to neutral topics like cold-boiled salmon. So did she, I imagine, for when I, as a preliminary to getting down to brass tacks, said, Er, she said, Er, too, simultaneously, the brace of ers clashing in mid-air. I'm sorry. I beg your pardon. You were saying? You were saying. No, please, go on. Oh, right-ho. I straightened the tie, my habit when in this girl's society, and had at it. With a reference to yours of even date, she flushed again and took a rather strained forkful of salmon. You got my note? Yes, I got your note. I gave it to Jeeves to give to you. Yes, he gave it to me. That's how I got it. There was another silence. And as she was plainly shrinking from talking turkey, I was reluctantly compelled to do so. I mean, somebody had got to. Too dashed silly, a male and female in our position simply standing, eating salmon and cheese at one another without a word. Yes, I got it all right. I see. You got it. Yes, I got it. I've just been reading it. And what I was rather wanting to ask you, if we happened to run into each other, was, well, what about it? What about it? That's what I say. What about it? But it was quite clear. Oh, quite. Perfectly clear. Very well expressed and all that. But I mean, well, I mean, deeply sensible of the honor and so forth, but, well, dash it. She had polished off her salmon and now put the plate down. Fruit salad? No, thank you. Spot of pie? No, thanks. One of those glue things on toast? No, thank you. She took a cheese straw. 
I found a cold egg which I had overlooked. Then I said, I mean to say, just as she said, I think I know, and there was another collision. I beg your pardon. I'm sorry. Do go on. No, you go on. I waved my cold egg courteously to indicate that she had the floor, and she started again. I think I know what you are trying to say. You are surprised. Yes. You are thinking of... Exactly. Mr. Finknoddle, the very man. You find what I have done hard to understand. Absolutely. I don't wonder. I do. And yet it is quite simple. She took another cheese straw. She seemed to like cheese straws. Quite simple, really. I want to make you happy. Dash it decent of you. I am going to devote the rest of my life to making you happy. A very matey scheme. I can at least do that. But may I be quite frank with you, Bertie? Oh, rather. Then I must tell you this. I am fond of you. I will marry you. I will do my best to make you a good wife. But my affection for you can never be the flame-like passion I feel for Augustus. Just the very point I was working round to. There, as you say, is the snag. Why not chuck the whole idea of hitching up with me? Wash it out altogether. I mean, if you love old Gussie, no longer. Oh, come. No. What happened this afternoon has killed my love. A smear of ugliness has been drawn across a thing of beauty, and I can never feel towards him as I did. I saw what she meant, of course. Gussie had bunged his heart at her feet. She had picked it up, and almost immediately after doing so, had discovered that he had been stewed to the eyebrows all the time. The shock must have been severe. No girl likes to feel that a chap has got to be thoroughly plastered before he can ask her to marry him. It wounds the pride. Nevertheless, I persevered. "'But have you considered,' I said, "'that you may have got a wrong line on Gussie's performance this afternoon?' Uh, admitted that all the evidence points to a more sinister theory, what price him simply having got a touch of the sun? Chaps do get touches of the sun, you know, especially when the weather's hot. She looked at me, and I saw that she was putting in a bit of the old drenched irises stuff. It was like you to say that, Bertie. I respect you for it. Oh, no. Yes, you have a splendid, chivalrous soul. Not a bit. Yes, you have. You remind me of Cyrano. Who? Cyrano de Bergerac. The chap with the nose? Yes. I can't say I was any too pleased. I felt the old beak furtively. It was a bit on the prominent side, perhaps, but dash it, not in the Cyrano class. It began to look as if the next thing this girl would do would be to compare me to Schnozzle Durante. He loved but pleaded another's cause. Oh, I see what you mean now. I like you for that, Bertie. It was fine of you, fine and big. But it is no use. There are things which kill love. I can never forget, Augustus, but my love for him is dead. I will be your wife. Well, one has to be civil. Right-ho, I said. 
Thanks awfully. Then the dialogue sort of poofed out once more, and we stood eating cheese straws and cold eggs respectively in silence. There seemed to exist some little uncertainty as to what the next move was. Fortunately, before embarrassment could do much more supervening, Angela came in and this broke up the meeting. Then Bassett announced our engagement, and Angela kissed her and said she hoped she would be very, very happy. And the Bassett kissed her and said she hoped she would be very, very happy with Gussie. And Angela said she was sure she would, because Augustus was such a dear. And the Bassett kissed her again, and Angela kissed her again, and in a word the whole thing got so bally feminine that I was glad to edge away. I would have been glad to do so, of course, in any case, for if even there was a moment when it was up to Bertram to think, and think hard, this moment was that moment. It was, it seemed to me, the end. Not even on the occasion, some years earlier, when I had inadvertently become betrothed to Tuppy's frightful cousin Honoria, had I experienced a deeper sense of being waist-high in the gumbo and about to sink without a trace. I wandered out into the garden, smoking a tortured gasper, with the iron well embedded in the soul. And I had fallen into a sort of trance, trying to picture what it would be like having the Bassett on the premises for the rest of my life, and at the same time, if you follow me, trying not to picture what it would be like, when I charged into something which might have been a tree, but was not, being, in point of fact, Jeeves. "'I beg your pardon, sir,' he said. "'I should have moved to one side.' I did not reply. I stood looking at him in silence, for the sight of him had opened up a new line of thought. This Jeeves now, I reflected. I had formed the opinion that he had lost his grip and was no longer the force he had been. But was it not possible, I asked myself, that I might be mistaken?' start him off exploring avenues, and might he not discover one through which I would be enabled to sneak off to safety, leaving no hard feelings behind? I found myself answering that it was quite on the cards that he might. After all, his head still bulged out at the back as of old. One noted in the eyes the same intelligent glitter. Mind you, after what had passed between us in the matter of that white mess-jacket with the brass buttons, I was not prepared absolutely to hand over to the man. I would, of course, merely take him into consultation. But recalling some of his earlier triumphs, the Sipperly case, the episode of my Aunt Agatha and the dog Mackintosh, and the smoothly handled affair of Uncle George and the barmaid's niece, were a few that sprang to my mind. I felt justified at least in offering him the opportunity of coming to the aid of the young master in his hour of peril. But before proceeding further, there was one thing that had got to be understood between us, and understood clearly. Jeeves, I said, a word with you. Sir, I am up against it a bit, Jeeves. I am sorry to hear that, sir. Can I be of any assistance? Quite possibly you can, if you have not lost your grip. Tell me frankly, Jeeves, are you in pretty good shape mentally? Yes, sir. Still eating plenty of fish? Yes, sir. Then it might be all right. But there is just one point before I begin. In the past, when you have contrived to extricate self or some pal from some little difficulty, 
you have frequently shown a disposition to take advantage of my gratitude to gain some private end. Those purple socks, for instance. Also the plus-fours and the old Etonian spats. Choosing your moment with subtle cunning, you came to me when I was weakened by relief and got me to get rid of them. And what I am saying now is that if you are successful on the present occasion, there must be no rot of that description about that mess-jacket of mine. Very good, sir. You will not come to me when all is over and ask me to jettison the jacket? Certainly not, sir. On that understanding, then, I will carry on. Jeeves, I'm engaged. I hope you will be very happy, sir. Don't be an ass. I'm engaged to Miss Bassett. Indeed, sir, I was not aware. Nor was I. It came as a complete surprise. However, there it is. The official intimation was in that note you brought me. Odd, sir. What is? Odd, sir, that the contents of that note should have been as you describe. It seemed to me that Miss Bassett, when she handed me the communication, was far from being in a happy frame of mind. She is far from being in a happy frame of mind. You don't suppose she really wants to marry me, do you? Pshaw, Jeeves! Can't you see that this is simply another of those bally gestures which are rapidly rendering Brinkley Court a hell for man and beast? Dash all gestures, is my view. Yes, sir. Well, what's to be done? You feel that Miss Bassett, despite what has occurred, still retains a fondness for Mr. Finknottle, sir? She's pining for him. In that case, sir, surely the best plan would be to bring about a reconciliation between them. How? You see, you stand silent and twiddle the fingers. You are stumped. No, sir, if I twiddle my fingers, it was merely to assist thought. Then continue twiddling. It will not be necessary, sir. You don't mean you've got a bite already? Yes, sir. You astound me, Jeeves. Let's have it. The device which I have in mind is one that I have already mentioned to you, sir. When did you ever mention any device to me? If you will throw your mind back to the evening of your arrival, sir, you were good enough to inquire of me if I had any plan to put forward with a view to bringing Miss Angela and Mr. Glossop together, and I ventured to suggest— Good Lord! Not the old fire-alarm thing! Precisely, sir. You're still sticking to that? Yes, sir. It shows how much the ghastly blow I had received had shaken me when I say that, instead of dismissing the proposal with a curt cha or anything like that, I found myself speculating as to whether there might not be something in it after all. When he had first mooted this fire-alarm scheme of his, I had sat upon it, if you remember, with the maximum of promptitude and vigor. Rotten was the adjective I had employed to describe it and you may recall that I mused a bit sadly, considering the idea conclusive proof of the general breakdown of a once fine mind. But now it somehow began to look as if it might have possibilities. The fact of the matter was that I had about reached the stage where I was prepared to try anything once, however goofy. Just run through that wheeze again, Jeeves, I said thoughtfully. I remember thinking it cuckoo, 
but it may be that I missed some of the finer shades. Your criticism of it at the time, sir, was that it was too elaborate, but I do not think it is so in reality. As I see it, sir, the occupants of the house, hearing the fire-bell ring, will suppose that a conflagration has broken out. I nodded. One could follow the train of thought. Yes, that seems reasonable. Whereupon Mr. Glossop will hasten to save Miss Angela, while Mr. Finknoddle performs the same office for Miss Bassett. Is that based on psychology? Yes, sir. Possibly you may recollect that it was an axiom of the late Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's fictional detective, Sherlock Holmes, that the instinct of everyone, upon an alarm of fire, is to save the object dearest to them. It seems to me that there is a grave danger of seeing Tuppy come out carrying a steak and kidney pie. But resume, Jeeves, resume. You think that this would clean everything up. The relations of the two young couples could scarcely continue distant after such an occurrence, sir. Perhaps you're right. But, dash it, if we go ringing fire-bells in the night-watches, shan't we scare half the domestic staff into fits? There's one of the housemaids, Jane, I believe, who already skips like the high hills if I so much as come on her unexpectedly round a corner. A neurotic girl, sir, I agree. I have noticed her. But by acting promptly, we should avoid such a contingency. The entire staff, with the exception of Monsieur Anatole, would be at the ball at Kingham Manor tonight. Of course. That just shows the condition this thing has reduced me to. Forget my own name next. Well, then, let's just try to envisage. Bong goes the bell. Gussie rushes in and grabs the basset. Wait. Why shouldn't she simply walk downstairs? You are overlooking the effect of sudden alarm on the feminine temperament, sir. That's true. Miss Bassett's impulse, I would imagine, sir, would be to leap from her window. Well, that's worse. We don't want her spread out on a sort of puree on the lawn. It seems to me that the flaw in this scheme of yours, Jeeves, is that it's going to litter the garden with mangled corpses. No, sir. You will recall that Mr. Travers's fear of burglars has caused him to have stout bars fixed to all the windows. Of course, yes. Well, it sounds all right, I said, though still a bit doubtfully. Quite possibly it might come off. But I have a feeling that it will slip up somewhere. However, I am in no position to cavil at even a one hundred to one shot. I will adopt this policy of yours, Jeeves, though, as I say, with misgivings. At what hour would you suggest bonging the bell? Not before midnight, sir. That is to say, sometime after midnight. Yes, sir. Right-o, then. At twelve-thirty, on the dot, I will bong. Very good, sir. End of chapter 21 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson, San Jose, California. Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 22. I don't know why it is, 
but there's something about the rural districts after dark that always has a rummy effect on me. In London I can stay out till all hours and come home with the milk without a tremor, but put me in the garden of a country house after the strength of the company has gone to roost and the place is shut up, and a sort of goose-fleshy feeling steals over me. The night wind stirs the treetops, twigs crack, bushes rustle, and before I know where I am the morale has gone futt and I'm expecting the family ghost to come sneaking up behind me, making groaning noises. Dash it unpleasant, the whole thing, and if you think it improves matters to know that you are shortly about to ring the loudest fire-bell in England and start an all-hands-to-the-pumps panic in that quiet, darkened house, you err. I knew all about the Brinkley Court fire-bell. The dickens of a row it makes. Uncle Tom, in addition to not liking burglars, is a bloke who has always objected to the idea of being cooked in his sleep, so when he bought the place he saw to it that the fire-bell should be something that might give you heart failure, but which you couldn't possibly mistake for the drowsy chirping of a sparrow in the ivy. When I was a kid and spent my holidays at Brinkley, we used to have fire-drills after closing time, and many is the night I've had it jerk me out of the dreamless like the last trump. I confess that the recollection of what this bell could do when it buckled down to it gave me pause as I stood that night at 12.30 p.m., prompt beside the outhouse where it was located. The sight of the rope against the whitewashed wall and the thought of some bloodsome uproar which was about to smash the piece of the night into hash served to deepen that rummy feeling to which I had alluded. Moreover, now that I had had time to meditate upon it, I was more than ever defeatist about this scheme of Jeeves's. Jeeves seemed to take it for granted that Gussie and Tuppy, faced with a hideous fate, would have no thought beyond saving the Bassett and Angela. I could not bring myself to share his sunny confidence. I mean to say, I know how moments when they're faced with a hideous fate affect chaps. I remember Freddy Widgeon, one of the most chivalrous birds in the drones, telling me how there was an alarm of fire once at a seaside hotel where he was staying, and so far from rushing about saving women, he was down the escape within ten seconds of the kickoff. his mind concerned with but one thing, viz. the personal well-being of F. Widgeon. As far as any idea of doing the delicately nurtured a bit of good went, he tells me, he was prepared to stand underneath and catch them in the blankets, but no more. Why, then, should this not be so with Augustus Finknottle and Hildebrand Glossop? Such were my thoughts as I stood toying with the rope, and I believe I should have turned the whole thing up had it not been that at this juncture there floated into my mind a picture of the Bassett hearing that bell for the first time. Coming as a wholly new experience, it would probably startle her into a decline. And so agreeable was this reflection that I waited no longer, but seized the rope, braced the feet, and snapped to it. Well, as I say, I hadn't been expecting that bell to hush things up to any great extent. Nor did it. The last time I heard it, I had been in my room on the other side of the house, and even so it had hoiked me out of bed as if something had exploded under me. Standing close to it like this, I got the full force and meaning of the thing, and I've never heard anything like it in my puff. I rather enjoy a bit of noise as a general rule. 
I remember Cat's Meat Potter Purbright bringing a police rattle into the drones one night and loosing it off behind my chair, and I just lay back and closed my eyes with a pleasant smile, like someone in a box at the opera. And the same applies to the time when my Aunt Agatha's son, young Thomas, put a match to the parcel of Guy Fawkes Day fireworks to see what would happen. But the Brinkley Court firebell was too much for me. I gave about half a dozen tugs, and then, feeling that enough was enough, sauntered round to the front lawn to ascertain what solid results had been achieved. Brinkley Court had given of its best. A glance told me that we were playing to capacity. The eye, roving to and fro, noted here Uncle Tom in a purple dressing-gown, there Aunt Dahlia in the old blue and yellow. It also fell upon Anatole, Tuppy, Gussie, Angela, the Bassett, and Jeeves, in the order named. There they all were, present and correct. But, and this is what caused me immediate concern, I could detect no sign whatever that there had been any rescue work going on. What I had been hoping, of course, was to see Tuppy bending solicitously over Angela in one corner, while Gussie fanned the Bassett with a towel in the other. Instead of which, the Bassett was one of the group which included Aunt Dahlia and Uncle Tom, and seemed to be busy trying to make Anatole see the bright side, while Angela and Gussie were, respectively, leaning against the sundial with a peeved look and sitting on the grass rubbing a barked shin. Tuppy was walking up and down the path, all by himself. A disturbing picture, you will admit. It was a rather imperious gesture that I summoned Jeeves to my side. "'Well, Jeeves?' "'Sir?' I eyed him sternly. "'Sir, forsooth!' "'It's no good saying, Sir, Jeeves. Look round you. See for yourself. Your scheme has proved a bust.' "'Certainly it would appear that matters have not arranged themselves quite as we anticipated, sir.' "'We?' "'As I had anticipated, sir. That's more like it. Didn't I tell you it would be a flop?' "'I remember that you did seem dubious, sir.' "'Dubious is no word for it, Jeeves. I hadn't a scrap of faith in the idea from the start. When you first mooted it, I said it was rotten, and I was right.' I'm not blaming you, Jeeves. It's not your fault that you have sprained your brain. But after this—forgive me if I hurt your feelings, Jeeves—I shall know better than to allow you to handle any but the simplest and most elementary problems. It is best to be candid about this, don't you think? Kindest to be frank and straightforward. Certainly, sir. I mean, the surgeon's knife, what? Precisely, sir. I consider— "'If you will pardon me for interrupting you, sir, I fancy Mrs. Travers is endeavouring to attract your attention.' And at this moment a ringing, "'Hoy!' which could have proceeded only from the relative in question, assured me that his view was correct. "'Just step this way a moment, Attila, if you don't mind,' boomed that well-known, and under certain conditions well-loved, voice, and I moved over. I was not feeling unmixedly at my ease. For the first time it was beginning to steal upon me that I had not prepared a really good story in support of my questionable behavior in ringing the fire-bells at such an hour, and I have known Aunt Dahlia to express herself with a hearty freedom upon far smaller provocation. She exhibited, however, no signs of violence. 
more a sort of frozen calm, if you know what I mean. You could see that she was a woman who had suffered. "'Well, Bertie dear,' she said, "'here we all are.' "'Quite,' I replied guardedly. "'Nobody missing, is there?' "'I don't think so.' "'Splendid. So much healthier for us out here in the open like this than frousting in bed. I had just dropped off when you did your bell-ringing act. For it was you, my dear sweet child, who rang the bell, was not?' "'I did ring the bell, yes.' "'Any particular reason, or just a whim?' I thought there was a fire. What gave you that impression, dear? I thought I saw flames. Where, darling? Tell Aunt Dahlia. In one of the windows. I see. So we have all been dragged out of bed and scared rigid because you have been seeing things. Here Uncle Tom made a noise like a cork coming out of a bottle, and Anatole, whose moustache had hit a new low, said something about some apes, and, if I am not mistaken, a ragomier, whatever that is. "'I admit I was mistaken. I am sorry.' "'Don't apologize, Ducky. Can't you see how pleased we all are? What are you doing out here, anyway?' "'Just taking a stroll.' "'I see. And you are proposing to continue your stroll?' "'No, I think I'll go in now.' That's fine, because I was thinking of going in, too, and I don't believe I could sleep knowing you're out here giving a rein to that powerful imagination of yours. The next thing that would happen would be that you would think you saw a pink elephant sitting on the drawing-room window sill and start throwing bricks at it. Well, come on, Tom. The entertainment seems to be over. But wait. The Newt King wishes a word with us. Yes, Mr. Finknoddle? Gussie, as he joined our little group, seemed upset about something. "'I say—' "'Say on, Augustus.' "'I say, what are we going to do?' "'Speaking for myself, I intend to return to bed.' "'But the door is shut.' "'What door?' "'The front door. Somebody must have shut it.' "'Then I shall open it.' "'But it won't open.' "'Then I shall try another door.' "'But all the other doors are shut.' What? Who shut them? I don't know. I advanced a theory. The wind? Aunt Dahlia's eyes met mine. Don't try me too high, she begged. Not now, precious. And indeed, even as I spoke, it did strike me that the night was pretty still. Uncle Tom said we must get in through a window. Aunt Dahlia sighed a bit. How? Could Lloyd George do it? Could Winston do it? Could Baldwin do it? No, not since you had those bars of yours put on. Well, well, well. God bless my soul. Ring the bell, then. The fire bell? The door bell. To what end, Thomas? There's nobody in the house. The servants are all at Kingham. But confound it all, we can't stop out here all night. Can't we? You just watch us. There is nothing, literally nothing, which a country house party can't do with Attila here operating on the premises. Seppings presumably took the back door key with him. We must just amuse ourselves till he comes back. Tuppy made a suggestion. Why not take one of the cars out and drive down to Kingham and get the key from Seppings? It went well. No question about that. For the first time, a smile lit up Aunt Dahlia's drawn face. Uncle Tom grunted approvingly. 
Anatole said something in Provençal that sounded complimentary, and I thought I detected even on Angela's map a slight softening. "'A very excellent idea,' said Aunt Dahlia. "'One of the best. Nip round to the garage at once.' After Tuppy had gone, some extremely flattering things were said about his intelligence and resource, and there was a disposition to draw rather invidious comparisons between him and Bertram. Painful for me, of course, but the ordeal didn't last long, for it couldn't have been more than five minutes before he was with us again. Tuppy seemed perturbed. I say, it's all off. Why? The garage is locked. Unlock it. I haven't the key. Shout, then, and wake Waterbury. Who's Waterbury? The chauffeur, ass. He sleeps over the garage. But he's gone to the dance at Kingham. It was the final wallop. Until this moment, Aunt Dahlia had been able to preserve her frozen calm. The dam now burst. The years rolled away from her, and she was once more the Dahlia Wooster of the old Yoiks and Tantivy days, the emotional, free-speaking girl who had so often risen in her stirrups to yell derogatory personalities at people who were heading hounds. "'Curse all dancing chauffeurs! What on earth does a chauffeur want to dance for? I mistrusted that man from the start.' Something told me he was a dancer. Well, this finishes it. We're out here till breakfast time. If those blasted servants come back before eight o'clock, I shall be vastly surprised. You won't get Seppings away from a dance till you throw him out. I know him. The jazz'll go to his head, and he'll start clapping and demanding encores till his hands blister. Damn all dancing butlers! What is Brinkley Court? A respectable English country house or a crimson dancing school? One might as well be living in the middle of the Russian ballet. Well, all right. If we must stay out here, we must. We shall all be frozen stiff, except— Here she directed at me not one of her friendliest glances. Except dear old Attila, who is, I observe, well and warmly clad. We will resign ourselves to the prospect of freezing to death like the babes in the wood— merely expressing a dying wish that our old pal Attila will see that we are covered with leaves— no doubt he will also toll that fire-bell of his as a mark of respect. And what might you want, my good man? She broke off and stood glaring at Jeeves. During the latter portion of her address, he had been standing by in a respectful manner, endeavouring to catch the speaker's eye. If I might make a suggestion, madam. I am not saying that in the course of our long association I have always found myself able to view Jeeves with approval— there are aspects of his character which have frequently caused coldnesses to arise between us. He is one of those fellows who, if you give him a thingummy, take a what do you call it. His work is often raw, and he has been known to allude to me as mentally negligible. More than once, as I have shown, it has been my painful task to squelch in him a tendency to get uppish and treat the young master as a serf or peon. These are grave defects." But one thing I have never failed to hand the man, he is magnetic. There is about him something that seems to soothe and hypnotize. To the best of my knowledge, he has never encountered a charging rhinoceros. But should this contingency occur, I have no doubt that the animal, meeting his eye, would check itself in mid-stride, roll over, and lie purring with its legs in the air. At any rate, he calmed down Aunt Dahlia, the nearest thing to a charging rhinoceros, in under five seconds. He just stood there looking respectful, 
and though I didn't time the thing, not having a stopwatch on me, I should say it wasn't more than three seconds and a quarter before her whole manner underwent an astounding change for the better. She melted before one's eyes. "'Jeeves! You haven't got an idea!' "'Yes, madam. That great brain of yours has really clicked as ever in the hour of need?' "'Yes, madam.' "'Jeeves,' said Aunt Dahlia, in a shaking voice, "'I am sorry I spoke so abruptly. I was not myself. I might have known that you would not come simply trying to make conversation. Tell us this idea of yours, Jeeves. Join our little group of thinkers and let us hear what you have to say. Make yourself at home, Jeeves, and give us the good word. Can you really get us out of this mess?' "'Yes, madam, if one of the gentlemen would be willing to ride a bicycle.' "'A bicycle?' "'There is a bicycle in the gardener's shed in the kitchen garden, madam. Possibly one of the gentlemen might feel disposed to ride over to Kingham Manor and procure the back-door key from Mr. Seppings.' "'Splendid, Jeeves.' "'Thank you, madam.' "'Wonderful.' "'Thank you, madam.' "'Attila,' said Aunt Dahlia, turning and speaking in a quiet, authoritative manner. "'I had been expecting it. From the very moment those ill-judged words had passed the fellow's lips, I had had a presentiment that a determined effort would be made to elect me as the goat, and I braced myself to resist and obstruct. And, as I was about to do so, while I was in the very act of summoning up all my eloquence to protest that I didn't know how to ride a bike and couldn't possibly learn in the brief time at my disposal, I'm dashed if the man didn't go and nip me in the bud. Yes, madam, Mr. Wooster would perform the task admirably. He is an expert cyclist. He has often boasted to me of his triumphs on the wheel. I hadn't. I hadn't done anything of the sort. It's simply monstrous how one's words get twisted. All I had ever done was to mention to him, casually, just as an interesting item of information, one day in New York when we were watching the six-day bicycle race, that at the age of fourteen, while spending my holidays with a vicar of sorts who had been told off to teach me Latin, I had won the choir-boy's handicap at the local school treat. A different thing from boasting of one's triumphs on the wheel. I mean, he was a man of the world and must have known that the form of school treats is never of the hottest. And, if I'm not mistaken, I had specifically told him that on the occasion referred to I had received half a lap start and that Willie Punting, the odds-on favorite to whom the race was expected to be a gift, had been forced to retire owing to having pinched his elder brother's machine without asking the elder brother, and the elder brother coming along just as the pistol went and giving him one on the side of the head and taking it away from him, thus rendering him a scratched at the post non-starter. Yet, from the way he talked, you would have thought I was one of those chaps in sweaters with medals all over them, whose photographs bob up from time to time in the illustrated press on the occasion of their having ridden from Hyde Park Corner to Glasgow in three seconds under the hour, or whatever it is. And as if this were not bad enough, Tuppy had to shove his oar in. "'That's right,' said Tuppy. "'Bertie has always been a great cyclist. I remember, at Oxford, he used to take all his clothes off on bumper supper nights and ride around the quad, singing comic songs.' Jolly fast he used to go, too. "'Then he can go jolly fast now,' said Aunt Dahlia with animation. "'He can't go too fast for me. 
He may also sing comic songs if he likes, and if you wish to take your clothes off, Bertie, my lamb, by all means do so. But whether clothed or in the nude, whether singing comic songs or not singing comic songs, get a move on. I found speech. But I haven't ridden for years. Then it's high time you began again. I've probably forgotten how to ride. You'll soon get the knack after you've taken a toss or two. Trial and error, the only way. But it's miles to Kingham. So the sooner you're off, the better. But... Bertie, dear. But, dash it, Bertie, darling. Yes, but, dash it, Bertie, my sweet. And so it was arranged. Presently I was moving somberly off through the darkness, Jeeves at my side, Aunt Dahlia calling after me something about trying to imagine myself the man who had brought the good news from Ghent to X. The first I had heard of the chap. So, Jeeves, I said as we reached the shed, and my voice was cold and bitter, this is what your great scheme has accomplished. Tuppy, Angela, Gussie, and the Bassett, not on speaking terms, and self faced with an eight-mile ride. Nine, I believe, sir. A nine-mile ride, and another nine-mile ride back. I am sorry, sir. No good being sorry now. Where is this foul bone-shaker? I will bring it out, sir. He did so. I eyed it sourly. Where's the lamp? I fear there is no lamp, sir. No lamp? No, sir. But I may come a fearful stinker without a lamp. Suppose I barge into something. I broke off and eyed him frigidly. You smile, Jeeves. The thought amuses you? I beg your pardon, sir. I was thinking of a tale my Uncle Cyril used to tell me as a child. An absurd little story, sir, though I confess that I have always found it droll. According to my Uncle Cyril, two men named Nichols and Jackson set out to ride to Brighton on a tandem bicycle, and were so unfortunate as to come into collision with a brewer's van. And when the rescue party arrived on the scene of the accident, it was discovered that they had hurled together with such force that it was impossible to sort them out at all adequately. The keenest eye could not discern which portion of the fragments was Nichols and which was Jackson. So they collected as much as they could and called it Nixon. I remember laughing very much at that story when I was a child, sir. I had to pause a moment to master my feelings. You did, eh? Yes, sir. You thought it funny? Yes, sir. And your Uncle Cyril thought it funny? Yes, sir. Golly, what a family! Next time you meet your Uncle Cyril, Jeeves, you can tell him from me that his sense of humor is morbid and unpleasant. He is dead, sir. Thank heaven for that. Well, give me the blasted machine. Very good, sir. Are the tires inflated? Yes, sir. The nuts firm, the brakes in order, the sprockets running true with the differential gear? Yes, sir. Right-o, Jeeves. In Tuppy's statement that when at the University of Oxford I had been known to ride a bicycle in the nude about the quadrangle of our mutual college, there had been, I cannot deny, a certain amount of substance. Correct, however, though his facts were, so far as they went he had not told all. 
what he had omitted to mention was that I had invariably been well oiled at the time, and when in that condition a chap is capable of feats at which in cooler moments his reason would rebel. Stimulated by the juice, I believe, men have even been known to ride alligators. As I started now to pedal out into the great world, I was icily sober, and the old skill, in consequence, had deserted me entirely. I found myself wobbling badly, and all the stories I had ever heard of nasty bicycle accidents came back to me with a rush, headed by Jeeves's Uncle Cyril's cheery little anecdote about Nichols and Jackson. Pounding wearily through the darkness, I found myself at a loss to fathom the mentality of men like Jeeves's Uncle Cyril. What on earth he could see funny in a disaster which had apparently involved the complete extinction of a human creature, or at any rate of half a human creature and half another human creature, was more than I could understand. To me the thing was one of the most poignant tragedies that had ever been brought to my attention, and I have no doubt that I should have continued to brood over it for quite a time, had my thoughts not been diverted by the sudden necessity of zigzagging sharply in order to avoid a pig in the fairway. For a moment it looked like being real Nichols and Jackson stuff, but fortunately a quick zig on my part, coinciding with an adroit zag on the part of the pig, enabled me to win through, and I continued my ride safe, but with a heart fluttering like a captive bird. The effect of this narrow squeak upon me was to shake the nerve to the utmost. The fact that pigs are abroad in the night seemed to bring home to me the perilous nature of my enterprise. It set me thinking of all the other things that could happen to a man out and about on a velocipede without a lamp after lighting up time. In particular, I recalled the statement of a pal of mine that in certain sections of the rural districts goats were accustomed to stray across the road to the extent of their chains, thereby forming about as sound a booby-trap as one could well wish. He mentioned, I remember, the case of a friend of his whose machine got entangled with a goat chained and who was dragged seven miles, like skioring in Switzerland, so that he was never the same man again. And there was one chap who ran into an elephant, left over from a traveling circus. Indeed, taking it for all in all, it seemed to me that with the possible exception of being bitten by sharks, there was virtually no front-page disaster that could not happen to a fellow, once he had allowed his dear ones to override his better judgment and shove him out into the great unknown on a push-bike, and I am not ashamed to confess that, taking it by and large, the amount of quailing I did from this point on was pretty considerable. However, in respect to goats and elephants, I must say things panned out unexpectedly well. Oddly enough, I encountered neither. But when you have said that, you have said everything, for in every other way the conditions could scarcely have been fouler. Apart from the ceaseless anxiety of having to keep an eye skinned for elephants, I found myself much depressed by barking dogs, and once I received an unpleasant shock when, alighting to consult a signpost, I saw sitting on top of it an owl that looked exactly like my Aunt Agatha. So agitated, indeed, had my frame of mind become by this time that I thought at first it was Aunt Agatha, and only when reason and reflection told me how alien to her habits it would be to climb signposts and sit on them could I pull myself together and overcome the weakness. In short, what with all this mental disturbance added to the more purely 
physical anguish in the billowy portions of the calves and ankles, the Bertram Wooster who eventually toppled off at the door of Kingham Manor was a very different Bertram from the gay and insouciant Boulevardier of Bond Street and Piccadilly. Even to one unaware of the inside facts, it would have been evident that Kingham Manor was throwing its weight about a bit tonight. Lights shone in the windows, music was in the air, and as I drew nearer my ear detected the sibilant shuffling of the feet of butlers, footmen, chauffeurs, parlor-maids, housemaids, tweenies, and, I have no doubt, cooks, who were busily treading the measure. I suppose you couldn't sum it up much better than by saying that there was a sound of revelry by night. The orgy was taking place in one of the ground-floor rooms which had French windows opening onto the drive, and it was to these French windows that I now made my way. An orchestra was playing something with a good deal of zip to it, and under happier conditions, I dare say, my feet would have started twitching in time to the melody. But I had sterner work before me than to stand hoofing it by myself on gravel drives. I wanted that back-door key, and I wanted it instanter. Scanning the throng within, I found it difficult for a while to spot Seppings. Presently, however, he hove in view, doing fearful lissom things in mid-floor. I high-seppingsed a couple of times, but his mind was too much on his job to be diverted, and it was only when the swirl of the dance had brought him within prodding distance of my forefinger that a quick one to the lower ribs enabled me to claim his attention. The unexpected buffet caused him to trip over his partner's feet, and it was with marked austerity that he turned. As he recognized Bertram, however, coldness melted to be replaced by astonishment. Mr. Wooster. I was in no mood for bandying words. Less of the Mr. Wooster and more back-door keys, I said curtly. Give me the key of the back-door, Seppings. He did not seem to grasp the gist. The key of the back-door, sir? Precisely, the Brinkley Court back-door key. But it is at the court, sir. I clicked the tongue, annoyed. "'Don't be frivolous, my dear old butler,' I said. "'I haven't ridden nine miles on a push-bike to listen to you trying to be funny. You've got it in your trousers' pocket.' "'No, sir. I left it with Mr. Jeeves.' "'You did—what?' "'Yes, sir. Before I came away. Mr. Jeeves said that he wished to walk in the garden before retiring for the night. He was going to place the key on the kitchen window-sill.' I stared at the man dumbly. His eye was clear, his hand was steady. He had none of the appearance of a butler who has had a couple. "'You mean that all this while the key has been in Jeeves's possession?' "'Yes, sir.' I could speak no more. Emotion had overmastered my voice. I was at a loss and not abreast. But of one thing it seemed to me there could be no doubt— for some reason, not to be fathomed now, but most certainly to be gone well into, as soon as I had pushed this infernal sewing-machine of mine over those nine miles of lonely country road and got within striking distance of him, Jeeves had been doing the dirty. Knowing that at any given moment he could have solved the whole situation, he had kept Aunt Dahlia and others roosting out in the front lawn on Desha B., and worst yet, had stood calmly by and watched his young employer set out on a wholly unnecessary eighteen-mile bicycle ride.
I could scarcely believe such a thing of him. Of his Uncle Cyril, yes. With that distorted sense of humor of his, Uncle Cyril might quite conceivably have been capable of such conduct. But that it should be Jeeves! I leaped into the saddle, and, stifling the cry of agony which rose to the lips as the bruised person touched the hard leather, set out on the homeward journey. End of chapter 22This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson, San Jose, California. Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 23. I remember Jeeves saying on one occasion, I forgot how the subject had arisen, he may have simply have thrown the observation out, as he does sometimes for me to take or leave, that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And until tonight I had always felt that there was a lot in it. I had never scorned a woman myself, but Pongo Twistleton once scorned an aunt of his, flatly refusing to meet her son Gerald at Paddington and give him lunch and see him off to school at Waterloo, and he never heard the end of it. Letters were written, he tells me which had to be seen to be believed. Also two very strong telegrams, and a bitter picture-postcard with a view of the little Chilbury War Memorial on it. Until tonight, therefore, as I say, I had never questioned the accuracy of the statement. Scorned women first, and the rest nowhere, was how it had always seemed to me. But tonight I revised my views. If you want to know what hell can really do in the way of furies, Look for the chap who has been hornswoggled into taking a long and unnecessary bicycle ride in the dark without a lamp. Mark that word, unnecessary. That was the part of it that really jabbed the iron into the soul. I mean, if it was a case of riding to the doctors to save the child with croup, or going off to the local pub to fetch supplies in the event of the cellar having run dry, no one would leap to the handlebars more readily than I. Young Lochinvar, absolutely. But this business of being put through it merely to gratify one's personal attendant's diseased sense of the amusing was a bit too thick, and I chafed from start to finish. So what I mean to say, although the providence which watches over good men saw to it that I was enabled to complete the homeward journey unscathed, except in the billowy portions, removed from my path all goats, elephants, and even owls that looked like my Aunt Agatha. It was a frowning and jaundiced Bertram who finally came to anchor at the Brinkley Court front door. And when I saw a dark figure emerging from the porch to greet me, I prepared to let myself go and uncork all that was fizzing in the mind. "'Jeeves,' I said. "'It is I, Bertie.' The voice which spoke sounded like warm treacle, and even if I had not recognized it immediately as that of the Basset, I should have known that it did not proceed from the man I was yearning to confront, for this figure before me was wearing a simple tweed dress, and had employed my first name in its remarks, and Jeeves, whatever his moral defects, 
would never go about in skirts calling me Bertie. The last person, of course, whom I would have wished to meet after a long evening in the saddle, but I vouchsafed with a courteous what-ho. There was a pause, during which I massaged the calves. Mine, of course, I mean. "'You've got in, then,' I said, in allusion to the change of costume. "'Oh, yes, about a quarter of an hour after you left, Jeeves went searching about and found the back-door key on the kitchen window-sill.' "'Ha!' "'What?' "'Nothing. I thought you said something. No, nothing.' And I continued to do so. For at this juncture, as had so often happened when this girl and I were closeted, the conversation once more went blue on us. The night breeze whispered, but not the basset. A bird twittered, but not so much as a chirp escaped Bertram. It was perfectly amazing, the way her mere presence seemed to wipe speech from my lips, and mine, for that matter, from hers. It began to look as if our married life together would be rather like twenty years among the Trappist monks. "'Seen Jeeves anywhere?' I asked, eventually coming through. "'Yes, in the dining-room.' "'The dining-room?' "'Waiting on everybody. They are having eggs and bacon and champagne. What did you say?' I had said nothing, merely snorted. There was something about the thought of these people carelessly reveling at a time when, for all they knew, I was probably being dragged about the countryside by goats or chewed by elephants, that struck home at me like a poisoned dart. It was the sort of thing you read about as having happened just before the French Revolution, the haughty nobles in their castles callously digging in and quaffing while the unfortunate blighters outside were suffering frightful privations. The voice of the Basset cut in on these mordant reflections. "'Bertie?' "'Hello?' "'Silence.' "'Hello?' I said again. No response the whole thing rather like one of those telephone conversations where you sit at your end of the wire saying, Hello, hello, unaware that the party of the second part has gone off to tea. Eventually, however, she came to the surface again. Bertie, I have something to say to you. What? I have something to say to you. I know. I said what? Oh, I thought you didn't hear what I said. Yes, I heard what you said, all right, but not what you were going to say. Oh, I see. Right-ho. So that was straightened out. Nevertheless, instead of proceeding, she took time off once more. She stood twisting the fingers and scratching the gravel with her foot. When finally she spoke, it was to deliver an impressive boost. Bertie, do you read Tennyson? Not if I can help. You remind me so much of those knights of the round table in the Idols of the King. Of course I had heard of them, Lancelot, Galahad, and all of that lot, but I didn't see where the resemblance came in. It seemed to me that she must be thinking of a couple of other fellows. How do you mean? You have such a great heart, such a fine soul. You are so generous, so unselfish, so chivalrous. I have always felt that about you, that you are one of the few really chivalrous men I have ever met. 
Well, dash it difficult, of course, to know what to say when someone is giving you the old oil on a scale like that. I muttered an oh yes or something on those lines, and rubbed the billowy portions in some embarrassment. And there was another silence, broken only by a sharp howl as I rubbed a bit too hard. Bertie. Hello. I heard her give a sort of gulp. Bertie, will you be chivalrous now? Rather, only too pleased. How do you mean? I am going to try you to the utmost. I am going to test you as few men have ever been tested. I am going— I didn't like the sound of this. "'Well,' I said doubtfully, "'always glad to oblige, you know, but I've just had the dickens of a bicycle ride, and I'm a bit stiff and sore, especially in the—as I say, a bit stiff and sore. If it's anything to be fetched from upstairs—' "'No, no, you don't understand.' "'I don't, quite, no.' "'Oh, it's so difficult. How can I say it? Can't you guess?' "'No.' I'm dashed if I can. Bertie, let me go. But I haven't got hold of you. Release me. Re and then suddenly I got it. I suppose it was fatigue that had made me so slow to apprehend the nub. What? I staggered, and the left pedal came up and caught me on the shin. But such was the ecstasy in the soul that I didn't utter a cry. "'Release you?' "'Yes.' I didn't want any confusion on the point. "'You mean you want to cull it all off? You are going to hitch up with Gussie after all?' "'Only if you are fine and big enough to consent.' "'Oh, I am.' "'I gave you my promise.' "'Dash promises.' "'Then you really?' "'Absolutely.' Oh, Bertie! She seemed to sway like a sapling. It is saplings that sway, I believe. A very parfait night, I heard her murmur, and there not being much to say after that, I excused myself on the ground that I had got about two pecks of dust down my back and would like to go and get my maid to put me into something loose. "'You go back to Gussie,' I said, "'and tell him that all is well.' She gave a sort of hiccup, and, darting forward, kissed me on the forehead. Unpleasant, of course, but, as Anatole would say, I can take a few smooths with a ruff. The next moment she was legging it for the dining-room, while I, having bunged the bicycle into a bush, made for the stairs. I need not dwell upon my bucketness. It can be readily imagined. Talk about chaps with the noose round their necks and the hangman about to let her go, and somebody galloping up on a foaming horse, waving the reprieve. Not in it. Absolutely not in it at all. I don't know that I can give you a better idea of the state of my feelings than by saying that as I started to cross the hall I was conscious of so profound a benevolence toward all created things that I found myself thinking kindly thoughts, even of Jeeves. I was about to mount the stairs when a sudden what-ho from my rear caused me to turn. 
Tuppy was standing in the hall. He had apparently been down to the cellar for reinforcements, for there were a couple of bottles under his arm. "'Hello, Bertie,' he said. "'You back?' he laughed amusedly. "'You look like the wreck of the Hesperus. Get run over by a steamroller or something?' At any other time I might have found his coarse badinage hard to bear, but such was my uplifted mood that I waved it aside and slipped him the good news. "'Tuppy, old man, the Bassett's going to marry Gussie Fignoddle.' "'Tough luck on both of them, what?' "'But don't you understand? Don't you see what this means? It means that Angela is once more out of pawn, and you have only to play your cards properly.' He bellowed rockingly. I saw now that he was in the pink. As a matter of fact, I had noticed something of the sort directly I met him, but had attributed it to alcoholic stimulant. "'Good Lord, you're right behind the times, Bertie. Only to be expected, of course.' if you will go riding bicycles half the night. Angela and I made up hours ago. What? Certainly. Nothing but a passing tiff. All you need in these matters is a little give and take, a bit of reasonableness on both sides. We got together and talked things over. She withdrew my double chin. I conceded her shark. Perfectly simple. All done in a couple of minutes. But, sorry, Bertie, can't stop chatting with you all night. There is a rather impressive Beano in progress in the dining-room, and they are waiting for supplies. Endorsement was given to this statement by a sudden shout from the apartment named. I recognized, as who would not, Aunt Dahlia's voice. Glossop! Hello? Hurry up with that stuff! Coming, coming! Well, come, then! Yoikes! Hard forward! Tally-ho! Not to mention Tantivy! "'Your aunt,' said Tuppy, "'is a bit above herself. "'I don't know all the facts of the case, "'but it appears that Anatole gave notice "'and has now consented to stay on, "'and also your uncle has given her a check "'for that paper of hers. "'I didn't get the details, but she is much braced. "'See you later. I must rush.' "'To say that Bertram was now definitely nonplussed "'would be but to state the simple truth. "'I could make nothing of this.' I had left Brinkley Court a stricken home, with hearts bleeding wherever you looked, and I had returned to find it a sort of earthly paradise. It baffled me. I bathed bewilderedly. The toy duck was still in the soap-dish, but I was too preoccupied to give it a thought. Still at a loss, I returned to my room, and there was Jeeves and it is proof of my fogged condition that my first words to him were words not of reproach and stern recrimination, but of inquiry. "'I say, Jeeves—' "'Good evening, sir. I was informed that you had returned. I trust you had an enjoyable ride.' At any other moment a crack like that would have woken the fiend in Bertram Wooster. I barely noticed it. I was intent on getting to the bottom of this mystery— but I say, Jeeves, what? Sir? What does all this mean? You refer, sir? Of course I refer. You know what I'm talking about. What has been happening since I left? The place is positively stiff with happy endings. Yes, sir. I am glad to say that my efforts have been rewarded. What do you mean, your efforts? 
You aren't going to try to make out that that rotten firebell scheme of yours had anything to do with it. Yes, sir. Don't be an ass, Jeeves. It flopped. Not altogether, sir. I fear, sir, that I was not entirely frank with regard to my suggestion of ringing the firebell. I had not really anticipated that it would in itself produce the desired results. I had intended it merely as a preliminary to what I might describe as the real business of the evening. You gibber, Jeeves. No, sir. It was essential that the ladies and gentlemen should be brought from the house, in order that once out of doors I could ensure that they remained there for the necessary period of time. How do you mean? My plan was based on psychology, sir. How? It is a recognized fact, sir, that there is nothing that so satisfactorily unites individuals who have been so unfortunate as to quarrel amongst themselves as a strong mutual dislike for some definite person. In my own family, if I may give a homely illustration, it was a generally accepted axiom that in times of domestic disagreement it was necessary only to invite my Aunt Annie for a visit to heal all breaches between the other members of the household. In the mutual animosity excited by Aunt Annie, those who had become estranged were reconciled almost immediately. Remembering this, it occurred to me that were you, sir, to be established as the person responsible for the ladies and gentlemen being forced to spend the night in the garden, everybody would take so strong a dislike to you that in this common sympathy they would sooner or later come together. I would have spoken, but he continued, and such proved to be the case. All, as you see, sir, is now well. After your departure on the bicycle, the various estranged parties agreed so heartily in their abuse of you that the ice, if I may use the expression, was broken, and it was not long before Mr. Glossop was walking beneath the trees with Miss Angela, telling her anecdotes of your career at university in exchange for hers regarding your childhood, while Mr. Finknoddle, leaning against the sundial, beheld Miss Bassett enthralled with stories of your school days. Mrs. Travers, meanwhile, was telling Monsieur Anatole, I found speech. Oh, I said, I see. And now, I suppose, as the result of this dashed psychology of yours, Aunt Dahlia is so sore with me that it will be years before I can dare to show my face here again. Years, Jeeves, during which, night after night, Anatole will be cooking those dinners of his. No, sir. It was to prevent any such contingency that I suggested that you should bicycle to Kingham Manor. When I informed the ladies and gentlemen that I had found the key, and it was borne in upon them that you were having that long ride for nothing, their animosity vanished immediately, to be replaced by cordial amusement. There was much laughter. There was, eh? "'Yes, sir. I fear you may possibly have to submit to a certain amount of good-natured chaff, but nothing more. All, if I may say so, is forgiven, sir.' "'Oh, yes, sir.' I mused a while. "'You certainly seem to have fixed things.' "'Yes, sir.' "'Tuppy and Angela are once more betrothed. Also Gussie and the Bassett.' Uncle Tom appears to have coughed up that money for Milady's boudoir, and Anatole is staying on. 
Yes, sir. I suppose you might say that all's well that ends well. Very apt, sir. I mused again. All the same, your methods are a bit rough, Jeeves. One cannot make an omelette without breaking eggs, sir. I started. Omelette? Do you think you could get me one? Certainly, sir. Together with a half a bot of something? Undoubtedly, sir. Do so, Jeeves, and with all speed. I climbed into bed and sank back against the pillows. I must say that my generous wrath had ebbed a bit. I was aching the whole length of my body, particularly toward the middle, but against this you had to set the fact that I was no longer engaged to Madeline Bassett. In a good cause one is prepared to suffer. Yes, looking at the thing from every angle, I saw that Jeeves had done well, and it was with an approving beam that I welcomed him as he returned with the needful. He did not check up with his beam. A bit grave he seemed to me to be looking, and I probed the matter with kindly query. Something on your mind, Jeeves? Yes, sir. I should have mentioned it earlier, but in the evening's disturbance it escaped my memory. I fear I have been remiss, sir. Yes, Jeeves, I said, champing contentedly. In the matter of your mess-jacket, sir. A nameless fear shot through me, causing me to swallow a mouthful of omelette the wrong way. I am sorry to say, sir, that while I was ironing it this afternoon, I was careless enough to leave the hot instrument upon it. I very much fear that it will be impossible for you to wear it again, sir. One of those old pregnant silences filled the room. I am extremely sorry, sir. For a moment, I confess, that generous wrath of mine came bounding back, hitching up its muscles and snorting a bit through the nose. But as we say on the Riviera, a quasserie, there was nothing to be gained by G.W. now. We Woosters can bite the bullet. I nodded moodily and speared another slab of omelette. Right ho, Jeeves. Very good, sir. End of Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.